Hello and welcome to The Cusp. Today is Sunday the 7th of February 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. Went to university there, joined the military, got married, moved to Auckland. Then I lived overseas for a long time. I've lived in Melbourne, London, New York, Heraklion, Crete, and Athens in Greece and travelled all around the world from there. Moved back to Auckland. I work now as a personal trainer and... And, um, and what else do you do, Chrissy? What else do I do? As well as being a personal trainer. Oh, you want to know that, Nathan? It starts with N, does it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh, right. That's right. I'm a naturopath. <gasps> See, and no one knew that. That's a big surprise. Uh, it's a big surprise because, you know, but that's a good thing to be. Um, I love cooking and I love entertaining and I love music. So, that's Chrissy. Who's got some news for us? Colin. Yeah, I did a bit of digging and uh, found an article from Russia. They've just flown their first stealth fighter, dubbed the T-50. Uh, flew for 45 minutes, and being the Russians, it's 12 months behind schedule. Uh, 13 years behind the US-built F-22 Raptor. And it's still going to be another, uh, they reckon, five to seven years before the military actually gets to fly one. <laughs> so the Soviets leapfrogging ahead in the, I guess, the stealth fighting capabilities will still be 20 years behind everyone else. Another piece we got is from US Strategic Command. They've asked world powers to start finding ways to start uh, reducing the amount of space debris that we have uh, circling the globe. They reckon it's going to start being a problem uh, in the next few years, and they want to try and uh, find a way to uh, deal with that. Stop me if I'm wrong, but at the moment, all they're basically doing is chucking all their crap out the door of the space shuttle. Pretty much. And it's floating around in space and causing a hazard, is that? Pretty much that, plus various satellites that have gone uh, unoperational. The Chinese and I think also the US have taken pot shots at dead uh, satellites and as part of their <sighs> testing. Yeah, so there's all the, the debris from that as well floating around that's uh, yeah causing problems. They're having to track more and more pieces and, yeah, it's taking up uh, too much time, becoming too much of a hazard. What, what, what's a dangerous size piece? I'm not really too sure. I think they get down to about five centimetres, I think, the size bits they're tracking. Yeah, as I understood it, anything even the size of a dust particle can be dangerous yeah. because it's moving at such velocity that the energy that it's got when it hits something is, yeah. is, is enough to cause a huge... Are they damage. tracking it, though? Oh, there is a size of other stuff they're tracking. tracking. Stuff, but yeah. I'm particularly concerned about space poo. That's <laughs> I, I suspect it's probably less dangerous, though, than things like screws and Well, do you CDs really want it smattering itself over your ship's cockpit as you go into orbit? <laughs> so it's most, said, yeah, and most space shuttles don't have a wiper system. For, <laughs> case of, uh, we've lost visibility. We have lost visibility. <laughs> Cannot return to Earth. I repeat, we have lost visibility. <laughs> 
Fair, fair call. Okay. Um, this may be a silly question, but they haven't actually got any plans as to what they're going to do about the space debris. No, at this point. no plans. So they've just asked everyone to help. Right. They are talking. Yes. Well, that's, so, that's the start of a plan, I suppose. We need yes. a big vacuum cleaner up there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Another one closer to Earth. Apple, uh, for all the tech heads, have uh, <laughs> launched their iPad, which is their laptop-sized iPod Touch. Insert vomit um, sound effects there. If you want oversized iPod Touch or an underperforming laptop, go for it. Basically an um, iPhone that doesn't actually do anything. Is that more or less right? Yeah. Because it's got a bigger screen. Yes, it's got a bigger screen. Well, I have to Ooh. say, I, I thought that uh, Stephen Fry's uh, blog entry on the iPad, pointing out that everyone said the iPod would fail, but it revolutionised MP3 GUIs. Everyone said the iPhone would never work out, and yet actually everyone is designing their technology around the iPhone interface. Yeah. Yeah. All the naysayers about the I- iPad could well be eating their own space debris in a year's time. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I guess I can't uh, knock it because I actually can't afford it. I want to buy one purely because it looks hot. As a piece of tech gear, Apple got their range right. And I don't think I've ever come across a piece of tech gear like the iPhone that I've wanted just after looking at it. Never used it, but I want it because it looks fantastic. So so the, the phrase you're looking for there is, is all sizzle and no steak. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. But that's how... That's, that's how, how they sell it to the teenage girls. Gone. That's yeah. how they've gone, yeah. and it's worked. Uh, as... Uh, Matthew said uh, they've revolutionised I guess the, the personal listening mm, device I mean, they go for simplicity of use and actually it turns out for most users that's all they actually need getting closer to our topic of this podcast conspiracies you all know about the earthquake in Haiti the conspiracy there is that the US wish to uh, take over the large pile of rubble that remains <laughs> they, uh, uh, the US military that had to try and look after the airport in Haiti, uh, turned away a French plane. We're not entirely sure why. Maybe there was people doing work on the runway. Or maybe it was full of Scientologists. Or Maybe. So or it wasn't a French plane yeah. at all. <laughs> maybe it was a, it mis- was a, a missile. French kite. A missile <laughs> painted to look like a plane. And the real planes were... Yeah, okay, sorry. The US is trying to now take over a hard-fill area of land so i'm not too sure why on earth they would want to there's nothing there now even the haitians are trying to leave that if anyone can manage a huge pile of rubble (laughs) americans probably can (laughs) well as opposed to building anything i mean yeah Yeah. although they would actually end up mismanaging the rubble yes yeah probably (laughs) it'll still be still be there in another two years time uh new zealand conspiracy the aussie league team is scared that England are going to throw their match against the Kiwis and it's going to mess up who meets who in the finals. The largest, yeah, the largest New Zealand conspiracy I could find in the news. And it had to do with league. I thought that was kind of lame, but however. And one more little science-related piece, uh, dinosaur colours. Uh, you might have heard about it. My uh, latest copy of New Scientist had a piece about it. They've started doing electron microscopy of the fossilised feathers and they've found the microstructures that contained the colour in feathers. And so what they've done is been able to match the ones in the fossils to the ones that we currently have today and approximate the colour, which has generally been what they've found as blacks, browns 
and one for the gingers or rangers orange nice so not so much green then no 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 greens and greys or anything like that or purples or purples (laughs) or blues depending on um, which book you're looking at but yeah they've had a look at fossilised bristles had a look at this and they've actually uh, put out a couple of pictures of what I would have to call more accurately coloured dinosaurs and they actually look really quite fantastic having a look at the the way the colours are laid out along the dinosaur is starting to back up the idea that feathers evolved more as a colouring for the dinosaurs and then the I guess the dinosaur fell off a cliff and realised hey hang on these things help me fly and so yeah you have a look at them and the dinosaurs covered it in uh, striped bands of colour and it looks uh, really quite effective so yeah that's Artist it for conception me. only of course but yeah. well <laughs> but as you said more accurate than what they've come up with in the past yeah. and uh, we'll find a link for that uh, yeah It'll and we'll stick on, it on the website. Yeah, it'll yeah. be on the website. Craig, did you have something? I found an interesting article in the New Zealand Herald recently about the effect of cell phone towers near properties on um, property values. There's some research done recently by a property lecturer at uh, the University of Auckland by the name of Olga Filipova. And what she did was looked at quotable value New Zealand, sale prices of houses over a two-year period, and then mapped out the proximity of the house to cell phone towers and has actually come up with the rather surprising finding that cell phone towers don't seem to have any effect on house prices, which is probably is rather surprising in that most people seem to think that having having a cell phone tower near your house is, is going to affect the property value, whether there's mm. anything in it. In well, terms it's not of something the, I would automatically have assumed myself, no, but no. I can see how maybe people would yeah, think that. Yeah. And well, given that the Herald goes on about property prices all the time indeed, and the threat yes. to the property market, it probably was a big surprise to the editor to find out <laughs> that actually it hadn't affect prices at all. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so yet another link disproven Indeed. to cell phone towers yes although given it's a herald report uh possibly you'd have to look at the source article to actually see whether the article actually resembles what was actually reported because herald's not particularly good at reporting this kind of information accurately comments yes. of the guests of the cusp podcast and not necessarily those of the cusp podcast you just hate the herald you hate it don't you with a loathing that is beyond description so, next, next subject <laughs> I'm sure the Herald is a marvellous source of news and we have nothing personal against them whatsoever. That's Matthew doesn't like them. Matthew Dentith. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and if APN wants to write to me about it, they can do whatever they like. (laughs) Well, there's a link to his website on on our website, so you can uh, send him a message there and tell him how much you're going to sue him for, for defaming your newspaper on a podcast that three people listen to. Yes. I thought it was four. Was it four now? I don't know. We don't actually have the numbers of the podcast yet, but um, oh, that's not including us, is it? <laughs> no, no, I, I was, I was not counting us. Oh, we've wow. we've all listened to it <laughs> in one week. Yes. Yeah. Double, double does it count if you listen to it twice? Yes. Yes, I'm sure it does. <laughs> Yeah, we can delete it again just to push numbers. We can we can track how many times you listen to it. Yeah. So that's news. Oh no, there's one other item of news that was really big for a while is the homeopathic overdose. Ten twenty three campaign in the UK decided that it would be a great idea to have a homeopathic overdose as a protest. They were actually doing it outside the pharmacies, I believe, Boots. in the UK. Boots, in Boots Pharmacy. Yeah. What's the significance of ten twenty three? Ten twenty three is Avogadro's limit. Avogadro's ah, number. Ten to the twenty third. Uh, once you've diluted something ten to the twenty three times, you no longer have any chance of having a molecule mm. of the original substance left. And just for clarity, because someone's going to write in and complain eventually when we get an audience. 
is uh, that maybe 10 to the 24th. So 10 to the 23, you may have a molecule. 10 to the 24th, I think that's probably when you don't anymore. So that's where they got the name of their little grassroots campaign from. Right. And the New Zealand skeptics joined in. Did a big one in Christchurch. Did our own version over here. And it went really well, I thought. They were on. But two. no one died. No one died. No one died. <laughs> it didn't go very well at all. There was all no, no overdosing. There was a marvellous um, parody article on. Can't remember the name of the website, but they wrote a parody article from the point of view of the homeopaths, claiming that because every single one of the skeptics went to sleep shortly afterwards, within 36, within 36 hours. hours, thank you. Therefore, the homeopathic remedies must have worked, which is absolutely hilarious. It wasn't The Onion, was it? Oh, no, it God. wasn't. It was a, it was a similar site, though, uh, yeah. with, a, with a rude name. So I won't say it, but I'll put a link on the website if I can find it. And um, yes. profanity-free this week? No, 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 not necessarily. I just can't think of the name. I thought yeah. TV3 did a really TV3 job. Had about oh, so we can talk. We can say bad <laughs> things about TV three, but not about the Herald. What double standards? Are you in the pay of APN? Conspiracy. Where shall we tell everyone? Shills for APN. I, I actually had a glass of wine in Devonport the other night, and I could swear there was a molecule of Hitler's urine in it. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, and no. what? What I want to know is what curative effect that would have had had it, had it been succussed properly. <laughs> Anyway, back to TV3 and TV3 its uh, terrible and, coverage, yeah, according, <laughs> to, according to people who aren't Matthew Denter, who only hates APM. But it was on TV. It was on TV3 and on TV1. TV1's was about 40 seconds worth, I think. And the TV3 was actually about like five minutes. Yep. And they did cover our side quite well, I thought. But they had a bit of a clip at the end from a homeopath and a believer that they didn't have an answer for, which I thought was a bit odd or a bit disappointing. Amen. Well, the, uh, the believer came on and said something like, um, you guys can believe whatever you like, but it worked for me, therefore I'm going to yeah. keep believing, yeah. and everyone should be entitled to their beliefs. But they didn't have a response to that from the sceptics, which would have been very, very easy to do. I guess the, the sceptics did a good job of trying to get their point across, but between the actual event, the editing and broadcasting, if I was to look at that article as a fence sitter, I would, in the future, try homeopathy. I wouldn't go, oh my gosh, homeopathy's crap. I'm never going to give that a go. That after looking at, I used to be sceptic, and but now I believe in homeopathy. Yeah, you know, that was the brilliant. only comment on Thanks it. very much. Yeah. And then having the homeopathic doctor, so yeah, you can't see the air quotes. <laughs> I, think, um, I think they could hear that. that. Yeah. And she said, oh, well, it's not because they don't have a proper regimen. They're not being treated for anything. Yeah. And there was just yeah. excuse after excuse after excuse. And it sort of... And did she quote some study? In a, she mentioned something about electromagnetic properties. Oh, now and it was just water. like, do you know oh what you're God. talking about? Well, and, no, and, obviously she doesn't. And it was just to look at it from a fence sort of perspective, it didn't put people off. I thought it was a, too much of a thumbs up for homeopathy. Even though, you know, Vicky and Gold, you know, chugging away little sugar pills uh, quite happily. Looked like they were looking for more, like those little pink smokers that you had as a kid. You know, you start yeah. getting quite keen on those. But yeah, it was... I can't imagine what they taste like being not designed as candy. I suppose well, chew on a sugar cube. When, when I was studying to be a naturopath, we did homeopathy for about eight-week course. And yeah, it's a placebo effect. It, wor- it works if you wish it to. Did it's they actually that say that, or is that your no, conclusion? No, of course not. That's only my okay. conclusion. Yeah. Because one of the best, I think, victories for us out of this whole thing 
was the quote from the New Zealand homeopathic bloody blah whatever they are organisation. Their media representative going on record as saying it's a mystery how homeopathy works because there's no material substances in it. Yeah. Which was exactly our point right from the beginning. And she's just gone and admitted it. Everyone knows now. Well, with the, and I um, thought honestly as from what you were saying before about TV3 as a fence sitter I probably would be leaning the other way. Yeah. But you're just, already a skeptic. I realise that <laughs> but at the same time I've always been interested in, in science so even from a scientific point of view when someone says there's nothing in it and that how it works is probably electromagnetism even not being a skeptic that to me is just you're educated though well sorry not <laughs> that not that educated <laughs> yeah was, maybe uh, I don't know it was a little bit frustrating I thought um, it was just good that we were on the news to be honest yeah. no it's good to get the skeptical point of view actually yep. appearing on TV yeah yeah and for quite a long time I mean it was actually almost the exact opposite of your normal media attention where Mm. we had five minutes and then they had 30 seconds Yeah. Mm. which I mean you can't complain about that really that's very good I'm sorry so we do all like TV3 here in this room over on TV2 I happened to um, catch part of an episode of Shortland Street where they were actually talking about anti-vaccinationists. They actually had some protesters on Shortland Street who were protesting at the hospital about vaccinations. Oh, that's awesome. But it actually came across on Shortland Street as they were nutcases and that uh, vaccines were good. Oh, I like Shortland Street again. (laughs) (laughs) Shortland Street's actually been fairly good with its actual medical information over time. I mean, it's had its big pharma conspiracies and and so forth. It's also really good at being topical because as it's being filmed every day they can cut scenes in if they want to if ah, right. information comes yeah. to hand they had a mataku in one of the houses on shortland street so oh, a, a curse where someone apparently had died and i never caught the resolution next time i saw it the house was no longer haunted uh, so i don't know whether so it's obviously to... they're, they're curse lifting right? well i mean they they, they were try, <laughs> they, they were trying to play both sides where one character's going oh i think i think there's mataku on this other people saying no it's just actually a series of unfortunate events right. which is giving you so credence to your view and i never saw the resolution it's not Days of Our Lives where they actually had the devil possessing a character for three years. And you could tell they did, they had glowing yellow eyes and they'd turn to camera. That was uh, really quite fantastic. I really don't think anyone thinks that Days of Our Lives is any sort of paragon of any sort oh, of um, rationality. It's a pa- but it's a paragon of soap operas. So, I mean, soap operas as they t- uh, t- tend towards the main, tend to become more and more outlandish like. with serial killers and okay. so forth. So, you know, eventually you're going to get UFO landings in wherever Shortland Street's actually set. Where is it set? <laughs> uh, it's o- over on the shore yeah. somewhere yeah. for some reason. No, they keep moving. Ferndale. Ferndale. Yeah. UFO landings in Ferndale. That's going to be this Christmas, I bet, UFOs. Okay, there's a prediction from wow. Matthew Dentith. UFOs in Ferndale. And I have a Shortland 0% success rate with predictions, <laughs> so watch and, out. And Matthew, he just said, he has an 80% success rate with his predictions. Uh, 0% success rate with my predictions. <laughs> same Na- thing, isn't it? Nathan psychics. has an 80% hearing difficulty when it comes to predictions I oh, make. I just, I just assumed that was the same thing with psychics. 80%. Well, 80%. yeah, alright. Fine. Close enough. Okay, so, unless anyone else has any other news, let's do an interview. Yay. So, Jeez. today's interview is... The world's foremost expert in no, no, no. conspiracy... New, New Zealand's Sorry. top debunker. I, mean, I, I wouldn't want to say I'm the world's foremost expert because A, it's this hubris. This is my podcast. No, I'm right, fine. If, I, if I'm going to be that famous, I'm going to be that famous in New Zealand. <laughs> World famous in New Zealand, just like LMP. So, today's interview is with New Zealand's leading expert in the philosophy of conspiracy theories, Mr. Matthew Denton. <laughs> 
Hello Welcome there. To the podcast. Why, thank you. Thank you for having me along. If you could, in, say, less than 10 minutes, tell us a little bit about your thesis that you're doing at the moment. In less than 10 minutes, <laughs> all right. Uh, right. So I'm writing a PhD thesis in the epistemology of conspiracy theories. So epistemology is the study of what, what it is rational for people to believe. And this is separate from psychology, which is more of a descriptive how do people think and how do they acquire beliefs. Epistemology is more about the theory behind belief formation, what makes a belief good, what makes a belief bad. And so I'm doing an epistemology PhD looking at what do we do with belief about conspiracy theories because we know conspiracies occur. Uh, we know criminal conspiracies occur all the time. The courts are awash with criminal conspiracies. You know that political conspiracies occur throughout history. The death of Julius Caesar, the Trotsky trials, doesn't actually matter which version of the 9-11 thesis you believe. It's an example of a conspiracy, whether it's an inside job by the Americans or an outside terrorist job performed by Al-Qaeda. It's an it's a conspiratorial action. So we know conspiracies occur, but when people say, I believe in a particular conspiracy theory, we do seem to be go, oh, actually, that's a very suspicious thing to believe. So how do we judge what makes a conspiracy theory good versus a conspiracy theory being bad? And I've spent the last three and a bit years essentially working on a thesis which argues that there's something about the transmission of conspiracy theories which is a bit suspicious. There's something about the fact that conspiracy theories are rivaled normally by official theories in some way, shape or form. So there seems to be some important role that goes on with the endorsement of theories in this particular respect. And there's also the fact that inferring that a conspiracy has occurred, so claiming that a mysterious group of others are responsible manipulating things behind the scenes to make an event come about, that seems like a really suspicious inference. And it does look like in many cases it resembles a so-called just-so fallacy, a post-facto explanation of the event that cites a mysterious conspiring cabal as being responsible, rather than appealing to more naturalistic forces, just the simple process of how political things work out. As usual, listening to Matthew, I understood about 20% of what he just said. So I'm going to try and ask some intelligent questions anyway. You try, Nathan, you try. <laughs> I thought I got 80%. Wow. Yeah, I um, no, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of this before as well, and, and what, what he's saying does make a lot of sense. You just mentioned something really quickly there at the end about a mysterious cabal trying to control events. Yes, the mysterious like them of the conspiracy them. theories. And... Mm. You said that that seems suspicious to you in the context of a conspiracy theory. Is that not more or less what most conspiracy theories well, no, are it's about? Sus- it's suspicious in regard to the inference that a conspiracy is occur- occurring, because many conspiracy th- theories talk about a mysterious cabal operating in the background. Now, often certain members of the cabal are outed. So if you're, a, if you're engaged in the denial of anthropogenic climate change, and you claim that Al Gore is leading a conspiracy of climate scientists, you tend to be saying, well, here's one particular conspirator who's well known, and he's backed by all these mysterious scientists operating in the background. Now, when you start talking about mysterious people operating in the background, it's a very hard claim to falsify. If you point at someone and say, oh, you're part of the cabal, and they say no, then you either go, oh, well, of course, you would say that, or, well, actually, no, they're not one of the mysterious others, but another person we can point at is going to be. And that seems like a a really suspicious move to make when you're talking about any kind of explanation that says certain people 
desired something to come about. If you're relying on the claim that actually they're mysterious, we don't know who they are, they could be anyone. Right. They could be mm. anyone in this room. Not, not falsifiable, and, and yeah. anything that they say simply proves the theory. Now, yeah. of course, as many people point out, actually, if you believe conspiracies are occurring, or you believe that conspiracies have occurred, it's reasonable to think that people will go out of their way to hide the presence of their yes. conspiracies their conspiring cabal no member of a conspiracy is going to admit that oh yes actually i'm i'm conspiring against you so there is some logic to it uh, the yeah. fact that they're not falsifiable actually makes sense within the dialectic it's just that yes. uh, i mean you would expect if someone was pulling off a conspiracy and they were doing it very well that they would all remain mysterious yes i mean take uh, a day before the assassination of julius caesar so the historical Texts we've got indicate that Caesar may well have been pre-warned, so he was told there was a plot against him. Now, if he had gone up to Marcus Brutus and said, you conspiring to kill me, Marcus Brutus, old chap? It's very unlikely that Brutus would have said, oh, yes, yes, Caesar, we actually are. He would have gone, no, of course I'm not, Jules, me old mucker. I'm not conspiring against you. Uh, so it makes sense that, you know, people aren't going to admit to their conspiracies and they're, yeah. they're going to actively go, oh, and uh, Jules, I, I think actually it's that guy over there. He's probably one of the conspirators. If anyone conspiring, it'll be that guy pointing at someone who's actually not part of the plot at all. Right. So how then do we tell the difference between a good conspiracy theory and a bad conspiracy theory? Ah, uh, the million, million dollar question. The difficulty with actually trying to work out whether a conspiracy theory is going to be good or bad is going to be just how strong the inference is between the claim that the event occurred, which we know, and there was a conspiracy operating in the background. And for that you're going to need fairly good documentary evidence uh, or really strong inferences. Uh, so one of the examples I like to talk about a lot are the Moscow show trials of the 1930s. This is a situation where Stalin was a little bit concerned that Leon Trotsky, his enemy, was actually gaining sympathy overseas. So he asked uh, what ended up becoming the KGB to investigate this. And they reported back and said, well, actually, it looks like Trotsky is, you know, he says things. He's not actually agitating or conspiring against you. He just goes around talking about how much that he feels that you've perverted the course of the revolution. And Stalin wasn't satisfied with this. He said, no, we need to actually, we need to make sure that Trotsky never becomes a martyr for his cause. He needs to be shown to be trying to actually destroy Soviet Russia. So they engineered a plot. They basically arrested people, tortured them for nine months psychologically, got them to take the witness stand, give fabricated testimony against Trotsky, which then legitimized the Soviet's assassination of Trotsky in Mexico. So it's a clear case of a conspiracy. And what's great about this particularly clear case is that the Dewey Commission, led by John Dewey in America, actually went through the trial transcripts and just after the verdicts came out, said, look, this is a clear case of conspiracy. The evidence doesn't stack up. Uh, we can show inconsistencies in the narratives. Trotsky wasn't in the places he was said to be. The witnesses weren't in the places they were said to be. They didn't have the right kind of connections. The US and the UK 
asked the Soviets, well, is the Dewey Commission largely right? And they said, no, 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 no. Uh, the UK and the US said, well, we trust the Soviets because they're the le legitimate government. They're the legitimate authority when it comes to trials within their system. Sure. And then in 1956, when Khrushchev, Nikita Khrushchev, becomes the premier of the Soviet Union after Stalin dies, Khrushchev admits, actually, yes, there was a conspiracy. It was all trumped up. Trotsky wasn't doing what we said he did at all. It was all part of our legitimization attempt. Now, the, so the Dewey Commission had it right, and they had good arguments in favour of it by actually pointing out inconsistencies and saying the only way to explain these inconsistencies would be if there was a conspiracy to get all these people to lie on the witness stand. So essentially it's similar to what the 9-11 truthers are doing, except it actually makes sense. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, and the, the which, inferences which, if there are, are any truthers there. listening, I got into trouble with the truthers late last year <laughs> when I I said some disparaging things about one of their icons, Richard Gage. If any truthers listening, uh, feel free to once again flood my website with abuse. I'll probably be used to it by now. That website will be on our website. Yes, <laughs> you can look that up, and you can send them all your hate mail. So, so is this one of the rare examples of a government conspiracy actually being true? Well, uh, it's a loaded question. It's a rare example of a case where we've got evidence that a conspiracy did actually occur. Mm -hmm. If you're a conspiracy theorist who believes that conspiracy is occurring all the time, no, they'll say, oh, rare. that's the tip of an iceberg. Actually, governments mm -hmm. are conspiring against us all the time. It's just very rare that we get the evidence for it. And there is a large question, actually, as to what the incidence of political conspiracies in our culture actually are. If you start thinking about what the Secret Service does, now most people admit that the Secret Service has to operate outside the law and present itself as operating within the law to get their job done. Mm -hmm. And so they may be engaged in conspiratorial activities all the time. Now, this could then stack up when you start talking about, well, you know, governments behind closed doors, they make deals with people, and then they present their findings to the public in the best possible way. Now, if all these small instances of at least conspiratorial-like activity are going on, that actually may suggest there's more conspiracy operating in the background of our civilization than possibly we're comfortable about thinking. The question is, is it overwhelmingly so, at which point there are going to be large-scale conspiracies going on everywhere, or are they small, minor-scale things that actually don't really amount to much at all? Uh, and that's a live question. I mean, yeah. as a philosopher, I'm, I'm not in a position to answer that. Sociologists, they look into this particular kind of thing. Psychologists, they look into it. And the jury really is out as to how much conspiratorial political stuff is going on. Criminal conspiracy, where corporations actively deceive consumers, that's going on all the time. The US court system is awash with criminal conspiracy convictions coming down on a day-by-day -day basis. So outside the government, conspiracies are really quite... Rife. Right. Mm. So you've mentioned Julius Caesar twice. Yes, and he gets um, mentioned in my thesis an awful lot. In fact, I actually changed the name of my thesis for about six months to The Death of Julius Caesar, plus some musings on the epistemology of conspiracy theories, because <laughs> he's an example I come back to all the time because it's really clear cut. So, would you say that was your favourite? Or one uh, of your favourites? Well, no, it's the easiest one to talk about. I mean, I grew up in Devonport, so we're, we're taping this in, on the North Shore uh, in Bayswater, which is sometimes called North Devonport by property developers. But Devonport itself has an old military fortification called North Head. And there's a variety of conspiracy theories around North Head. <laughs> one centres around there being 
old valuable Boeing seaplanes hidden in tunnels we can no longer gain access to. Uh, the other complementary or sometimes competing conspiracy theory is that these same tunnels which are hidden from the public apparently contain decaying ammunition. Now in the 80s when there was actually a huge furore about North Head going on in the Devonport local community and I was growing up there my father was being rung up all the time to ask whether he remembered being through these tunnels or not. And so the conspiracy was a live issue for me as I was growing up. I read the archaeological reports that Doc uh, did to actually look at whether there were additional tunnels there. The archaeology seemed to indicate that there's nothing additional to North Head that we don't already know about, and all the eyewitness testimony could actually be re-described as belonging to how people viewed the head 40 years ago, and then come and then after 40 year absence, uh, mistaking features of a rather radically changed uh, surface now. North Head looks right. quite different from, from how it did in the 1960s and so. And I found the archaeological reports quite convincing. I thought, but why does the conspiracy theory continue to persist, even though the evidence really looks quite flimsy? And so that essentially is my favourite conspiracy theory, because it's what actually got me into studying them for a PhD. Which leads me nicely into my next question. Why are there conspiracy theories? And I guess in this context what I'm saying is why are there the bad conspiracy theories? What's the allure of thinking that the government is out to get you? Well, in psychology the argument comes across something like this. People like to think that things happen for a reason. And so we want to blame events upon people. The philosopher Karl Popper, who spent time in Otago and wrote a book called The Open Society and, and Its Enemies, he was the first philosopher to ever actually talk about conspiracy theories in any rigorous sense. And he compared belief in conspiracy theories to a belief in a divine agency. So in the past we used to blame bad things on the gods. Now we live in an age of rationality and of reason, so we no longer blame the gods for bad things, we blame mysterious others, godlike entities who operate behind the scenes, and who are the best examples of people who have power over us who aren't necessarily open to us to question, well that's the government or political forces. So, and that does seem quite reasonable. Humans do like to think that things happen for a reason. Yeah. And so the lure of conspiracy theories is that it gives you an explanatory mechanism to say, well, this bad thing happened in our society because they wanted it to happen, where they are your natural enemy, whether you're on the left, the right, the middle, etc., etc. That does make a lot of sense. So you say that Karl Popper was the first philosopher to yeah. write about conspiracy theories. In 1936... The next person to write on conspiracy theories was Charles Pigden in 1995. So there's right. a good right. 60 wow. years yeah. between pu publication and Pigden's article, which is called Popper Re Revisited or What is Wrong with Conspiracy Theories, argues that Popper gets a lot of his theory about conspiracy theories wrong. Uh, so he's right in principle, and the intentional explanation stuff is good. Uh, but Popper then goes, no reasonable person should ever believe in conspiracy theories. And Charles's answer is the historical answer, which is, but what about this example, this example, this example, and this example? Actual uh, conspiracy yeah, theories. Actual cases of people conspiring politically and non-politically. Uh, there must be something more to the debate. You can't just write them off. You need to, be, uh, you need to argue what's actually wrong with them, rather than just right. define them as just being bad beliefs in general. How come there was such a gap, you know, from, you said, the 30s to the 90s? 
I think because studying conspiracy theories is taken to be a suspicious activity, everyone assumes, I won't say everyone knows, but I tell knows in air quotes, and air quotes just don't work particularly well yeah. on radio, uh, everyone assumes that conspiracy theories are examples of suspicious beliefs that we have about the world. And so, basically, we know they're all wrong. Uh, there are crazy people out there who do believe them, but no one cares about the opinions of crazy people, apart from when they vote in elections, at which point people care about their beliefs all the time. So you, why would you study crazy beliefs? And that's essentially why, for 60 years, no one in philosophy was looking at it. And now psychologists were, lo were looking at it, but they were looking at it because they were looking at, well, cre crazy people believe these things. How do we deal with crazy people who believe these things? We need to understand what they're doing. And so they decided, well, generalizing here, the general view has been that belief in conspiracy theories resembles paranoid delusions. And sociologists were studying them because they wanted to know why in certain communities conspiracy theories arrive. So they were looking at the socio-economic pressures that might get certain parts of the population to believe conspiracy theories about other parts of the population. But philosophers didn't seem to find a way into this discussion until actually 1999 when this philosopher called Brian L. Keeley wrote a rather in-depth article on conspiracy theories called Of Conspiracy Theories, published in a very premier journal, the Journal of Philosophy. It's probably the A-grade journal in philosophy. And suddenly people went, oh, well, if you get this published in the Journal of Philosophy, maybe there is something to it. Now, since then, there's only been about 18 publications within philosophy on conspiracy theories. It's a very young field, even though actually it dates back to 1936. The modern commentary is actually quite young, uh, which is why hopefully I'm getting in on the workshop floor, as they say, to uh, make my mark as a young Turk. Think of yourself as a bit of a pioneer? Uh, I certainly think that my particular stance on it is taking the field in a fairly interesting direction. Um, now, I'm hoping I'm taking the field in an interesting <laughs> direction, rather than Matthew Dentith, who was a dead end in the discussion of conspiracy theories, publishes academic thesis in 2010, not 2010, 2010. And so I'm hoping that actually I'm going to be able to contribute to this particular debate by talking about what I think is important for the analysis of conspiracy theories, which is when is inference good versus when is the inference bad. Uh, and hopefully in a year's time I'll know whether that's been a successful project, so I will have submitted the PhD, I will have done my viva, and either I'll be disheartened by people saying what you've talked about is rubbish, or this is interesting, you should make this in, into a book. So at which point you retire and... Well, no, to, you, to podcasts, if, if I was going, to, if I was going to retire as a conspiracy theorist or a conspiracy theory theorist, as I like to refer to myself, because <laughs> uh, it sounds slightly better, I'd actually be much better off finding a plausible conspiracy theory that I could then do the lecture tour circuit for for the rest of my life. Do a David Icke essentially, right. and just be invited all around the world uh, to talk about some particular conspiracy theory to the masses, and be paid five hundred dollars by each attendee to give an eight-hour rambling lecture. Which I'm assuming you could probably do quite well. Oh, the, uh, I, I can experts. filibuster with the best of them. <laughs> mm. So now which side would you be going from, though? Well, if I wanted to make money, I'd have to go for the true believers. Uh, there really isn't actually much of an audience for uh, people who are sceptical of conspiracy theories, because actually most of the population are. And there's, there's no unifying factor there. Or it's people who believe 9-11 was an inside job, or they believe that there are rept shape-shifting reptiles controlling the world, or there's a giant Jewish conspiracy. Yeah. They feel that they've been left out by what they call the mainstream media. Uh, they feel that 
that they're not being listened to by governmental authorities. So they need to band together to share their ideas and try and work out new ways to get their ideas out there. But, so the money is with the believers. But, but could it be that, there's, that the, the believers in a particular conspiracy theory are, are a minority, but in terms of the majority of the people, everybody believes in some sort of theory? I suspect everyone is a conspiracy theorist of some stripe. So most people have a belief, well, I tend to define, define a conspiracy theory as just any explanation that cites a conspiracy as a salient cause of some event. Mm. So unless you believe that it was a complete accident that two planes flew into the Twin Towers <laughs> on 9-11-2001, then any belief you've got about it is a conspiracy theory of some kind. Now there's an accepted conspiracy theory, the official story, which was that it was a job committed by hijackers who were trained by, sorry, were funded by Al-Qaeda to create the event as a terrorist activity. Uh, there's an unofficial or unendorsed conspiracy theory, which ranges from an inside job to sonic weaponry to possibly, who, well, who knows what the... There's such a large range of other 9-11 hypotheses. And if you believe any story about 9-11 that has conspiratorial activity, I'd say you have a belief in a conspiracy theory. Uh, we tend to reserve the term conspiracy theorists for people who have really hard and fast beliefs about unofficial theories about yeah. the event. But the, yes, I think everyone believes in at least some conspiracies. The key word there probably, though, is, is the word believe. Yes. Or I sort of use the word believe. Without good evidence. That's it. If, if I have good evidence, then I'm not technically believing in anything. Well, then you'd have a justified belief. A ju okay. And cool. then you've got to actually talk about how, how, how do you get the warrant for that belief? So where does the justification come from? So presumably, actually, most people haven't really done any in-depth study into 9-11. Yeah. They haven't read the NIST report. They haven't gone through the minutiae of evidence or looked at all the different competing views. But they make what appear to be legitimate appeals to authority. They go, mm -hmm. well, actually, what do the experts believe about this particular thing? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, this is a big part of how we justify our beliefs. We don't have the time to actually go through and actually get good arguments for every single thing we believe. We look at what the experts believe. We go, well, if most experts in the field believe this, that's good justification for me to believe it as well again it's as you said the fallacy of, of appeal to authority yeah you've got to have experts that are actually legitimate experts yes. in the correct yeah. field yeah who they have to be appropriate experts about. they have to be in wide-scale agreement with yeah. the rest of their community they've got to be testifying honestly so they can't have been you know, paid out by someone so there's a whole lot of criteria for the appeal to authority and that's why people get it wrong i mean that's why people see a physicist who believes in intelligent design and goes, oh, well, he won a no no Nobel Prize for building a radio telescope. Therefore, he must be an expert in biology as well. Therefore, I'll take on his belief in intelligent design. In the case of, well, no, physicist, biologist, different fields. Yeah. My pastor said it was true. Well, I'll, and once again, and, you know, if you believe in a theory of, of divine re revelation and you can justify that with the right kind of discourse, then maybe that's going to be a legitimate appeal to authority. Because it turns out it's really hard to justify the appeal to divine revelation. It's, uh, when you prod it, it seems to be quite, ah. not even sticky, sort of uh, diaphanous. Indeed. And what a great word. Diaphanous. Diaphanous. She's a good old bird. The, um, the advent of the internet, do you think that has, um, has driven the, the recent rise in conspiracy theories? Well, actually, funny you mentioned this. There's a paper by a philosopher called Steve Clark, who's over in Tasman. 
Tasmania or Southern Australia. He's in Australia anyway. And he wrote a paper on conspiracy theory and controlled demolition, talking about 9-11 and talking about the rise of conspiracy theories on the internet. And he actually makes the rather interesting thesis, and we'd actually like to see some further study into this, that the internet's actually been really bad for conspiracy theories. Once upon a time, when you wrote your book on a conspiracy Mm. theory, you would point out who the conspirators were. Uh, And then if there was any discourse about it, it went on in letters. Uh, Whilst on the internet, as soon as you publish, people can immediately critique what you're saying. Mm. And so conspiracy theorists have to be a lot more vague about their conspiracy theories now. Mm. They point to more mysterious groups with only a few key members. Uh, So the internet's actually, to a large extent, stopped some conspiracy theories because skeptics can jump onto conspiracy theories immediately. Do you think it's made it more honest? Well, actually, I, Steve Clark's thesis seems to be conspiracy theorists have had to be slightly more dishonest about their conspiracy theories. They can't point exactly at what they want to point at anymore. They've got to hedge their bets and be rather mysterious about things. So they never actually state what they actually believe. And certainly, there's a lot of talk that goes on about the way that coded phrases get used in conspiracy theories. So people no longer talk about Jewish banking cartels. They talk about the world global financial elite. Now, if you're a student of conspiracy theories, go, well, that's pointing towards the outer protocols of Zion and all those anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But because people jump on that all the time, people are much more circumspect about their conspiracy theorizing. And this means that actually conspiracy theories are much more cagey, much more coded. Uh, And actually, to a large extent, conspiracy theorists, you could argue, are much less honest about what they really believe in order to prevent potential criticism. And that's the point, of course, is that the more vague the conspiracy theories are, the, the harder, harder it they is. are yeah. to debunk. Because as soon as you go, oh, well, actually, X isn't a member of the conspiracy, you go, oh, my theory accommodates that. X never needed to be a member of the conspiracy. Yeah. I said someone like X. Someone like X yeah. is a member of the conspiracy. I didn't say the Jews. I said the global financial elite. So does that yes. mean there are going to be less conspiracy theories? Fewer. <laughs> fewer. Does that mean there will be fewer <laughs> conspiracy theories? And what a pedant he is, too. <laughs> uh, probably not, actually. Uh, once again, if it's true that people like to put forward intentional explanations of things that blame particular people for bringing about events, unless we can cure that in the human species, we're going to have lots and lots of conspiracy theories with us for all time. Uh, the, the question is whether, we, whether the warrant of these particular beliefs is getting stronger or less strong. Uh, or weaker, maybe, would be a better term. Stronger or weaker? Weaker. I've I've just made up a brand new word, weaker. Put it into the dictionary Uh, over time. And that's all going to do with how open we think our society is, uh, how much the role of oversight plays. Uh, So, in theory, any of us could actually, if we want to do the legwork, actually inspect the electoral results in New Zealand for the last election, uh, ring every member of the country, who did you vote for, tally up the votes, and actually see whether it's accurate or not. If they can remember. 
Yeah. And if they tell the truth. Well, yes, and you know, therein lies the other issue. People lie all the time, whether they've got good reason or not. So there's a big question as to how open our society is and whether the warrant for conspiracy theories is going up. But I think we'll be stuck with conspiracy theories until such time that we replace ourselves with rational robots. Uh, and then they'll probably just talk about the conspiracy theories that humans had and how risible they really were. And of course it's in your interest for conspiracy theories to continue. Yes, yes, it gives me something to do. <laughs> So you're also a sceptic in general. Were you a sceptic before you started your thesis? Uh, I was at one. I was in my youth a rather devout theist, uh, writing my MA. There's nothing, nothing to be ashamed about that. Well, no, but actually writing my MA, which was actually in continental philosophy as opposed to analytic philosophy. I'm one of those philosophers who's gone from the bad side to the good side. And I was writing on this Jesuit philosopher called Pierre Tahard de Chardin, who was the first Roman Catholic to try and reconcile evolution with a spiritual creation. Not a sure now. De Chardin was a, pa- a paleontologist. He accepted that evolution was the mechanism by which species came into existence. As a Roman Catholic priest, he was of the opinion that humans were soul, they were divine. So he had to come up with a theory that reconciled evolution with spiritual creation, the notion that humans were created by God in some unique sense. And so he developed this evolutionary system whereby the whole history of the universe has been an evolution towards consciousness. And the end of history is when every conscious being thinks the same thought at the same time, becomes God, and then is able to transcend time to the beginning and start the process up, which is actually quite similar to the philosophies philosophies of a German philosopher called Hegel. So I compare and contrasted. And the process of doing that actually winnowed out my theistic belief, because Tahad was the best bet I had for justification for belief in evolution and a divine presence. And actually, it just didn't work. So essentially, I became more and more sceptical about things through time. Uh, prior to that, I'd always been rather sceptical towards weird and, we- and wacky claims about the world, but my theism was essentially the, the last refuge of a dying man. Uh, and so from that, I, I, became, yeah, I, I became the man I am today, which... No comment. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) Precisely. Yeah. So, what other sceptical activities are you involved with? Well, actually, mostly the thesis at 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 the moment, for the sheer fact that the thesis really is the sum total of my existence. I'm in the last year, so it's writing, writing, writing. I do a fortnightly segment on Auckland University's radio station BFM on a Sunday morning called The Dentist Files where I talk about recent conspiracy theories and actually in the last half year I've become the go-to person for certain parts of the media if they want to comment on conspiracy theories I get rung up Uh, so when it turned out that Jeanette Fitzsimons was endorsing some version of the 9-11 inside job thesis. The Herald on Sunday contacted me to say was I aware that Jeanette Fitzsimons had put forward complimentary comments on a 9-11 conspiracy theory and so I looked into it and my initial response was well actually maybe she's just doing what politicians do which is yes of course I've read your book and yes of course I find it all very interesting vote for me vote for me vote for me as politicians want to do uh, but Matt actually got in contact with her uh, found out that actually she, ha- she actually was a believer in that the 
Theory of 9-11 is incomplete without an additional investigation, and had met with Richard Gage, this prominent 9-11 truther who was in the country doing a lecture tour, and due to a second conversation I had with Matt, I ended up being quoted in the Herald on Sunday for calling Jeanette Fitzsimon naive for the endorsement of this particular theory, which then That's... meant I got weeks and weeks of vitriolic hate mail from the truther com community, and they're actively trying to get me to retract that statement, so then the Herald on Sunday to print a retraction of, of some kind so that it was, so were you misquoted sir was a frequent email I got in the hope that if I said yes then they would say oh he was misquoted of course he doesn't actually think that blah 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 considering <laughs> the words you could have used I think yeah, that they'd be quite pleased with naive <laughs> yeah well I must admit I think there was also Matt uh, taking the High road? Well, yes. I mean, the, we, we had a fairly long conversation. Uh, so we had you know, a 20-minute conversation about the thing. The article was only about 800 words at most. Uh, actually, no, actually probably more, more, more about 400. So none of the in-depth stuff I'd been able to talk about was going to go into it. So I think he took something which was rather indicative of what I was saying, but also wasn't clearly defamatory. Right. Uh, gotcha. Which, you know, so, is good so for me just, and good for him. Just on mm. record now today... Does naive adequately sum up more or less what you were saying about Jeanette, whatever her name is? I, I do think that her position on the 9-11 truth movement is incoherent with her position on, say, climate change, where she appeals to appropriate authorities, considers the evidence in the right way. Uh, her position on 9-11 is completely inconsistent with her otherwise principled stands in other issues. But so, I wonder okay. if she's appealing to her constituency. Well, yes, and there is actually a big suspicion uh, that the Greens are... Because, I mean, I'm a Green voter. Uh, the Greens are very varied and disparate, and there are the remains of the really, really hard left who have lots and lots of really wacky conspiracy theories, like the hard right have lots and lots of wacky conspiracy theories. Mm. And you've got to appeal to those constituents. Uh, right. So there's always going to be this question, does she really believe it, or is she actually trying to appease people and with politicians you can probably never tell Jeanette Fitzsimons is a politician well uh, although, the uh, although she's about to, uh, she's either re resigned or about to resign so she's well, she yeah so she's I think she's 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 gone now yeah now the other thing that you're interested in or involved in is teaching critical thinking skills yes tell us about that all right so I'm a I'm yeah I'm a un I'm a university lecturer in my time when I'm not writing a PhD thesis. So I teach up at the med school teaching the philosophy of science and I also teach critical thinking for both the stage one students we have in the department of philosophy but also in adult education as well. Uh, I'm a firm belief that we need to be teaching more and more in the way of critical thinking skills in our society. Uh, it's not that people are natively bad reasoners. It's more that people don't consider their arguments often before they give them, or they don't consider arguments as they're received, and thus can be led down the track to believing weird things, when if, if they paused and thought about it, they go, oh, hold on, wait a minute, that makes no sense. So as a critical thinking teacher, my role is to actually make explicit the mechanisms that most people actually are using, they're just not ac actively aware of. So making it clear what processes of inferences go on and such like. And I think 
academics have a social duty to actually take their research and try and get it out there into the real world. So one thing I'm doing with my PhD thesis is having conversations like this, trying to explain what my research means. And as a philosopher and epistemologist, I think it's important that the critical thinking that we use in our discipline is something which is being taught to everyone to make the world more philosophic, more critical, and hopefully more sceptical. When you say everyone, you're talking about adult education? Is well, that, is um, that a night classes yeah. sort of...? Yes, well, uh, it's yeah, the, the, what we call the classic night classes, although some of them actually take place in the middle of the day. Uh, so I, I change the timing every year. So, uh, so if I do a night class version of critical thinking one year, I do a day class version the next year, so people who couldn't enrol the year right. prior. I also teach a conspiracy theories course uh, for Cont Ed as well. Although that's in danger of disappearing because of Nationals' drastic cutback on adult education. Only literacy and numeracy courses will be funded in future, essentially. So my critical thinking skills course should be fine. My course on conspiracy theories will probably go the way of the dodo. Thanks, National. Thanks. You want to come up with a conspiracy to explain that? Uh, (laughs) Well, I'll just go with the usual left-wing conspiracy that National only care about the rich. Uh, which I sometimes think has a degree of plausibility uh, to it. But call me an old-fashioned socialist. And you're talking as well about teaching children? Yes, uh, I'm, a- I'm not actively involved in what in this thing called uh, philosophy for schools, or P for C, although I have been to some training days about how it's done. Uh, so this is a movement which actually started in America, transferred to Australia, uh, is getting off the ground here now, which is actually going into primary schools and teaching children thinking skills. One of the important things we need to note about critical thinking skills, they are heavily tied into our language skills. Now, the older you get, the harder it is to acquire new, new language skills, and the older you get, the harder it is to teach people critical thinking. Because the way that we have our discourses are all rooted in language, and our ability to manipulate that language and actually think about what's going on is a skill we learn at a very young age. So if we get critical thinking skills in at that young age, that actually would, in theory, and there are studies going on to see whether this is actually the case, improve the lot of students over time. Excellent. That's probably a good-sized interview. Just in case, I'll get you to tell us about some New Zealand conspiracies. Okay, well, we've got North Head. So that's the... the, the, Depending on what you actually think about the Kaikoura lights down in the South Island, that's an example of a, of a conspiracy. Sort of conspiratorial, and actually one of my uh, pet projects for what I'm going to do next, is the Celtic New Zealand thesis. So this is a group of people, uh, sorry, proponents of the Celtic New, Ze- New Zealand thesis are a group of people who believe that the Celts got to New Zealand first. So the Celts who are living up in northern <laughs> Europe with their goatskin coracles somehow managed to get down around Africa over to to Australia, to New Zealand, mm-hmm. colonised New Zealand before the Maori got here, and actually are the real tangata whenua of this land. And they purport a gigantic conspiracy, so it doesn't matter which government is in charge, working with the Maoris, as they're probably likely to illegitimately plu- pluralise Maori in these kind of situations, to hide the real truth of New Zealand's prehistory. They actually, white man was here first, and we have complete claim over the place, and the Maori, they're the, they're the interlopers that raped and killed off 
our ancestors and the like. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, and so this is a this is a large scale conspiracy where the entire academic world and the political world are conspiring to hide the real history of this place. And it's the thing I want to actually go into next: actually look at the weird alternative histories that exist within New Zealand, uh, and actually look at the kind of arguments they put forward uh, and why they seem to remain so prevalent. Your second book. Yes, my second book, the sequel. Where would you find? Um, I realise you'd have to go and research that. Where would you find those sorts of details about you know, who was here first, or any sort of record of the goings on? The Maoris arrived and went. Hey, what are all these white fellas doing running around? And it's oh, pff, oh, well, who well, cares? And they didn't bother yeah. to write it down. Well, see, the first thing you'd look at is the archaeological evidence. So New Zealand has a very, very good archaeological records so the department of conservation which does most of our archaeological digs uh is very good for a publishing what they produce and b actually doing very intensive site surveys and certainly given what we know of polynesian culture and given what we know of the oral history uh all the archaeological record fits with all of those particular factoids uh it doesn't appear to be any large-scale occupation of new zealand prior to the arrival of the polynesians and we would find evidence of it we'd find european artifacts and such like throughout the place of course they do have evidence in the form of swirly marks on rocks yes yes uh, i i I saw a couple of maori morris dancers in Devonport yesterday (laughs) ah well and so and well so so the Morris dancing culture has survived through uh, the local iwi or hapu uh, and has been displayed even today within humble coastal towns like Devonport, which is, shows that it was actually colonised by the English, given that the Devonport is an English name. Oh, um, but yes, yeah, so you'd be looking at the archaeological evidence, the oral histories, how they map to the movement of the Polynesian people throughout Polynesia. So we know a lot about how, when people got to particular islands at particular time. You would do cross-comparisons of the material culture between one island group and the next. The linguistic evidence gives us a lot of evidence as to when people got here for the diversion in Austronesian and so forth. So there's a lot of very good, very strong evidence that fits the official story. The Maori were here first. But of course, that's part of the conspiracy. That entire Polynesian archaeological industry. It's designed to hide the Celts getting here, designed to hide the people of South America, so the Thor Heyerdahl thesis, and so forth. It's all part of a large-scale conspiracy to hide the fact that white men got everywhere first in their uh, goatskin coracles, which are marvellous seaworthy boats, as everyone knows. We're asking everybody this question. What's your star sign? My star sign? I would say it was Cancer. You would say it was, it was cancer. I would say it was I'm cancer. Sure. I happen to know that given the pole stars moved over the last few thousand years, I'm actually not quite sure whether you go back one house or forward one house. So in yeah. theory it's cancer, but if you were to be a proper astrologer, you'd, so have, to, you'd have to actually work cancer, out. Currently cancer, should be but the next one over. Yeah, and, and unfortunately I, don't, I, only know, I only know my star sign. If you're giving anyone else's date, I can't work out who they are. So yeah. I say, well, which it, order it, they go in? I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I, I just know it's crabs. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew's star sign is crabs. Yep. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Matthew. You've well, been a marvelous thank you for having me. And you're welcome back any time. Excellent. Leaving us with the word of the day. Wasn't that diaphanous? Yeah, no, I don't <laughs> like what that. Means. Uh, well, di- a, di- a diaphanous dress is one that floats easily in the breeze and is a thin material. Mat- mat- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
It's what you can see through, for Yes, a day from the stress. So today's word of the day is blipe. B-L-Y-P-E. And a blipe is the little bits of skin that come off when you get a sunburn. Ooh. Blipe. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs> and throughout summer, people were bliping. Why would you name it that? Why would you go, hmm, hang on. This peeling skin, I'll call it a blipe. Because every single part of the body and the reaction to it, by well, reactions on it or, or to it, have names. Everything so the doctors can confuse you. Because, ah, oh, yes, that's a clear case of blipe. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I mean, if you're talking about words beginning with B, there's nothing quite like bars, B-A-R-S-E, which is the bit of skin that connects your genitals to your anus. That's the bars. The bars. <laughs> The what? So the Bars, B-A-R-S-E. It's named after a French town because it was a useless thing between two other towns. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew, for that extra word of the day. And Craig, would you like to do the quotes? Indeed I would. This quote comes from Arthur C. Clarke, the late Arthur C. Clarke, um, who was a marvellous science fiction writer and inventor of uh, a whole bunch of things, including the satellite. I would defend the liberty of consenting adult creationists to practice whatever intellectual perversions they like in the privacy of their own homes, but it is also necessary to protect the young and innocent. <laughs> Love it. Excellent. Marvellous quote. Thank you. And you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you've got any comments, questions or suggestions, use the Contact Us form on our website, thecusp.org.nz. Uh, it's another episode. See you next time. Indeed. Bye. Bye. Ciao.